0: The Retrograde Approach, Episode 15, Thoroscopic Sympathectomy and the Management of Hyperhidrosis with Dr. Edward Travers.
1: this episode of The Retrograde Approach, we're very fortunate to be joined by Dr. Edward Travers, an vascular and endovascular surgeon based at the Flinders Medical Centre in Adelaide. Uh, Dr. Travers is is a colleague of ours who I was very fortunate to have trained with when uh, Sam and myself were junior registrars in Brisbane, but uh, having born and bred in Adelaide has returned back to his roots and now provides a comprehensive vascular and endovascular practice uh, in the state of South Australia. Uh, tonight we are going to have a chat about hyperhidrosis and proceed on to a discussion about thoroscopic sympathectomies. Uh, Ed, thank you very much for joining us. We're very privileged to have you here tonight.
2: Yeah, again, Sam. So pleasure to be here.
0: Thanks, Ed. Uh, you have the uh, the title or the uh, recognition of being the vascular, a uh, previous vascular trainer who popularized the Oxford textbook as a surrogate to the Rutherford textbook of vascular surgery as uh, sufficient pre-exam reading. So, congratulations on that title.
2: Uh, thanks. I've always been one for uh, for efficiency, uh, rather than just reading everything you possibly can. I think uh, there are a few people who can probably take me for that.
0: <laughs> oh, that's I mean, one for one attempts and seeing the exam—it you can't get better than that. So, uh, your your exam uh, study technique and strategy proved successful as as always. So.
2: I, I certainly wouldn't wouldn't rec- recommend my techniques in general, but, hey, it's all, all about how you get there in the end, right?
0: Exactly.
1: <laughs> well, um, Ed, uh, hyperhidrosis is a, a condition that afflicts uh, a very broad um, range of people in our community, but um, generally in a younger population group where it seems to have a significant um, uh, psychosocial effect on their life and their ability to function both uh, in their personal but also professional lives. But I guess um, the way that we look at hyperhidrosis and often the way they get referred to us is often after uh, many failed attempts at non-operative interventions. Sam, I, I guess in, uh, in in our preparation for the exam, we always thought about hyperhidrosis as sort of excessive sweating um, in, in response to thermal or emotional stimulus beyond physiological requirements and i guess to put that into simple terms it's you're looking at really excessive sweating as it is um, typically affecting the palm but also can affect the plantar surface also the auxiliary surfaces as well and occasionally facial uh, facial surfaces and also the sort of onward um, presentation of facial blushing that's also associated with this sort of uh, presentation yep Um, ed in your practice what sort of general population groups have you seen that are potentially afflicted by this? And how do you go about initially um, trying to elicit a history from them to determine the severity and significance of this in their life?
2: So I mean, Overall, um, in in my experience, the majority of uh, patients who present with hyperhidrosis tend to be uh, younger. Um, and it is something which um, generally seems to uh, you have know, become apparent during puberty uh, and uh, it certainly has been described that usually by the late 20s and a lot of people it does actually can improve but so often the the groups of patients of see are generally in their early 20s or late teens it tends to um, affect females a bit more than males um, but perhaps part of that is actually that women are the more likely ones who are actually going to actually present and do something about it and then just tend to put up with things as we uh, we've seen a lot of a lot of disorders um and uh it's often particularly for people who um particularly young girls who've had this since the onset of puberty have gone through most of their teenage years with um significant sweating and uh, and the problems associated with that and suppose it comes down to if um as you say predominantly people have either uh, palmer or auxiliary hyperhidrosis uh, and each of those present their own issues and to sort of briefly talk about hyperhidrosis, it tends to be more um, more of a problem for people who are actually doing, say, manual labour or doing things with their hands, whereby having being sweaty can become a major problem, particularly, say, people in the food industry where you're wearing um, sort of gloves all the time or trying to get gloves on and off or even just the fact that you're handling food can be a problem. Um, or yeah, certainly in a pre-COVID era, people, era, people would um, be always nervous about shaking hands um, if they, they're really sweaty or their hands are very sweaty all the time, obviously that's not really such an issue anymore. Um, and so that's when that can tend to be, have an, a particular effect. Um, for those with the auxiliary hyperhidrosis, then it tends to be more of a, a clothing-related issue. So people tend to obviously get um, sweaty and, and their clothes tend to um, reflect that as well. So uh, it's a particular interest of what, what people actually do as far as what they do, they make particular choices, or what they wear. Uh, do they sort of avoid um, wearing certain things? They avoid going into, into social situations. And it's the important thing is really about, for a start, working out how much of an impact this is having um, on their lives. Uh, and then, really, from there, the next important thing is go right. A lot of people may have may have tried one one form of uh, therapy or another, and working out how much success they've had or what they've tried and uh, and how far they've actually gone down that path before sort of working out where the next step is to go from there.
1: Yeah. And and I guess to extend on some of the comments that you provided, broadly speaking, Sam, we divide um, the presentation of hypohydrosis on the basis of their anatomic geography, but also in terms of both primary and secondary Sam, your, your comments on sort of primary idiopathic hyperhidrosis um, sort of what's your sort of overall take on that?
0: So primary idiopathic hyperhidrosis uh, usually occurs as a focal phenomenon with the, uh, usually tends to affect the palms, the soles of the feet and craniofacial areas. I, um before I sat at the fellowship exam spoke to uh, Dr. Roger Bell in Melbourne who does a lot of these operations and I was, he sort of mentioned a couple of interesting points. One, um, sometimes the parents notice quite early on in uh, childhood that the children's ma- their, their children may have hyperhidrosis. They notice that even as infants they can have really quite sweaty palms or feet. Um, generally, um which I, yeah, so that's a, one thing to bear in mind. It actually can start quite early in life. Um, obviously, as we've already said, yogi can be exacerbated by emotional stress, thermal stress, um, and then we can start a sort of cascade or cycle of um, blushing and then sweating and um, patients become aware of it and it sort of perpetuates the symptoms. Um, usually not uh, at night and uh, usually nocturnal symptoms are atypical. And then you can get um, other effects like skin infection and obviously um, malodor.
1: Yeah, and then extending from that, of course, there are secondary causes of hyperhidrosis, which are a broader sieve of potential causes, including infective causes, endocrinological causes, neuroendocrine causes, malignancy, neurological toxins and drugs, which all form part of the uh, sort of broad differential when you initially see a patient and your workup for hyperhidrosis,
0: I um, um I would presume, like Ed, that a lot of the patients you see or treat for this are sort of like that former category, re- like you know, started on quite early in life, got a bit worse in puberty. Um, you know, all these secondary causes like infections and um, alcohol, drug abuse. I presume they were sort of presenting patients a lot older. Would you agree with that?
2: Yeah, that, that's right. And it's often, you know, the majority of the time you can sort of differentiate. Um, it's really based on age more than anything else. Um, but also the duration of the history is, is certainly important. And if you've got someone who's saying their 40s or 50s who have never had problems throughout throughout their life and then have had an onset of through adulthood, then it's then, you know, that's, that's not really going to mean a, yeah. um, a primary or idiopathic cause um, and vice versa. So the, the patient who's the had it sort of uh, for as long as they can remember or... From a very young age, it's more likely to um, to be that, but it's the tricky ones that kind of somewhere in between that can be a bit difficult to work out.
1: Yeah. For our registrars out there and non trainees who um, uh, listening to the discussion about hyperhidrosis, I think it's an important side step to then consider what are the what are the aspects of the history that you might consider as you work a patient up for hyperhidrosis and. In my mind, uh, the history really begins with trying to clarify symptom onset, uh, understanding whether there's a family history and underlying comorbid condition that may be contributing to this, in particular to try and help exclude secondary causes. But also like Ed and Sam mentioned, trying to get a feel for the pattern of hyperhidrosis. So that's looking at the sites of involvement, duration and frequency of sweating, the volume of sweat produced triggers and the existence or absence of nocturnal symptoms. And as Sam mentioned, that is unusual. And as Ed mentioned previously, I think the impact on a patient's functionability, not only within their social environment, but also in their professional environment, particularly the impact on work, um, their leisure activities and physical functions is vital to get a good understanding of how significant this is in their day-to-day practice. But um Hyperhidrosis also has quite a significant psychological impact on people and may result in their withdrawal from their ability to function within professional settings, but also their social interactions. And then finally, I think it's well worth looking at um, and clarifying the presence of systemic symptoms and particularly B symptoms um, as um, secondary causes are also, as Sam and Ed have mentioned, a potential consideration here. Now... The physical examination for a patient with hyperidrosis, uh, will is usually um, the most obvious finding is typically associated with the uh, the sweating that's encountered. But um, other things that couldn't also be evident is maceration of the skin that can be secondary infection or malodor from um, the sweating involved. Um, Ed and Sam, there are some more uh, specific tests that can be performed, such as uh, the gravimetric test or minor starch iodine test or the hydrogen test all of which seem rather academic which I've never done in my own personal practice but I guess uh, thoughts uh, in terms of anything else that you might consider as part of your physical examination
0: I presume it, I don't, do you I, don't do any of those
2: uh, no it's they're um, sort of not things I've really um, sort of come across throughout my training and certainly um, what I do now either um i think a lot of we really, uh, i take a lot of really based on um the history uh and uh, and sort of going from there because i think you usually you can get a lot of information out of that yeah um without going down the path of doing some weird and wonderful tests i think they certainly probably do have a role in in some cases um but in the vast majority of the times it, uh, i don't think it's a particularly important a, a lot of those things are more traditional things which are nice from a scientific point of view and particularly if you're doing research and you're proving you know certainly degree of severity or or things like that. But certainly Uh, uh, I don't I don't see a huge role for it. And if you've got any thoughts Sam?
1: Yeah, I'm I'm certain at the fellowship exam, apart from a monofilament in his pocket, Sam had some waiting papers ready to go. (laughs)
2: Do you have a monofilament in your pocket for the exam, Sam?
0: No, Because I only had one monofilament, and then someone made the point, You're going to have a new monofilament for every patient. I was like, uh, No, I don't
1: have I
2: it. There's always one.
1: There's always one. <laughs> and I guess the subsequent consideration is what are sort of the um, baseline investigations you might perform um, for these patients as you work them up for the hyperhydrosis, especially as you're trying to define between primary and secondary causes. And uh, I guess a lot of these investigations are predominantly biochemical in nature. Yep. Um, Whether that's a full blood count to exclude infection, a HbA1c or a random fasting of random blood glucose to look for an underlying potential diabetic cause or uh, thyroid function tests. Um, You may also consider 24-hour urine collections of metanephrines and catecholamines, especially if you think there's a fierce chromocytoma that may be accounting for the patient's symptomology. Um, that, that I guess those would help to delineate between some of the secondary causes if that was a consideration. Uh, but Ed, I guess, broadly speaking, you wouldn't have thought there were any other particular investigations you might perform?
2: No, I think that really covers um, sort of at least a, a good broad screen if you're considering a secondary um, if it's not entirely clear on history um, or if you have any other doubt. And really that should pick up most of the, most of the things you'd really be, be looking for as your major causes. Yeah.
1: Uh, and Sam, I guess in, uh, in the patients that you have seen with hyperhidrosis in your time in training and now subsequently in consultant practice, when it comes time to talk about some of the management strategies for hyperhidrosis, Broadly, I think of it as sort of the large volume of non-operative techniques first yep. prior to operative intervention and typically operative intervention is really only considered for those profoundly uh, disabled as a result of hyperhidrosis or when other treatment options have really failed or exhausted. What are some of the non-surgical management strategies for hyperhidrosis that you've seen or uh, can consider for patients?
0: Um, I think um, a lot of the patients who actually end up seeing Ed. There's a good chance they've tried a lot of these. They've and uh, failed. I don't think anyone um, gets to the point where they see a vascular specialist and hasn't really tried a lot of the basic things. And they've probably been kicking around for some time. Ed, before they've seen you, and maybe have seen a dermatologist or another specialist. Would you agree with that?
2: Yeah, some, there are some some patients. Um, uh, I suppose if we could go back a step, the majority of patients we will see obviously come from a, a general practitioner. Yeah. Um. But and it really comes down to you know the a general practitioner's understanding of the disease, um, how to, how to manage it and and how to refer best. Uh, and so if you've got you know, if they've you know, haven't really don't really have much experience or don't have a lot of knowledge regarding the practice they might have had. Like tried like a, maybe for an auxiliary hyperhidrosis, tried one antiperspirant and that's about it, and then referred to a vascular surgeon, um, whereas some might have actually referred to a dermatologist, in which case a dermatologist who are really the, the experts in the medical and non-surgical management of uh, of hyperhidrosis would have gone through the whole gamut. And so if, if a dermatologist who's got a good understanding of the disease process and all the management strategies of referring on, then generally speaking, that would be uh, this patient needs surgery effectively. Um, whereas from a GP, then you, know, you can probably go, right, we'll take a step back and sort of go, go from the start and go, all right, maybe they haven't tried all, all the options. And, and there's certainly some patients where either they haven't tried much at all or um, haven't had much success with a few simple things. And even getting from us, then referring on to a, a dermatologist with an interest is certainly a, a good way to go because they've got a good knowledge of uh, some of the, the, the mechanisms involved in this and, and how they can actually treat it and also they'll probably get access to some slightly different therapies that we either don't have access to or don't have as much knowledge about.
0: Yeah. So I think those ones that we're sort of alluding to would be the um, aluminium chloride hexahydrate uh, type antiperspirants. I don't know any off the top of my head but um, I think uh, when I was doing some pre-reading for the exam, I think there's actually a lot of people who are against um uh, Oh, you mean you based, um, isn't that
1: just, isn't that just links Africa for you, Sam? <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's been going strong since, uh, year 10. Okay. And then the, um, there are various, uh, anticholinergic agents. like so glycopyrolate the one that most people would be familiar with in atropine. I think the most obvious thing about a lot of these things that they got pretty, they may have pretty significant other anticholinergic effects like a dry mouth, et cetera, that patients find, um poorly tolerated um and,
2: but, but, and i think particularly the um so the, as you're saying the medic the oral medications are the ones which are really the, the worst tolerated um treatments that tends to be more the the topical tri- type treatments have much better success rates and are much better tolerated by patients because the any side effects are, are generally local rather than systemic effects.
0: Yeah, and then i think um there are sort of some invasive procedures that are kind of non-surgical like um the one that's become popular in Victoria is uh, mirror dry. So I don't know—is that iontophoresis or microwave treatment? Have you heard of that, Ed? I
2: well, think yeah, iontophoresis certainly has a, a, a lot a lot of um a lot of background behind it. I think there's certainly a, a quite a, a good role for that. And um, traditionally, you know, iontophoresis has been things like having kind of a, a water bath with a um a, a solution in it with a um, electrical current of sorts being passed through. Um, that it used to always be you just basically like a little bath that you so you could whatever parts of your body you could stick into like a, a little bath, then you could be treated. So therefore for palmer and plantar, hypodrosis can actually be quite effective. Well obviously for auxiliary or facial it certainly doesn't quite work. Mm. Um but in more recent times, um there are some uh hind- there are some availability of some iontopharesis paddles. Um, whereby you can actually then sort of put that up under, uh, so in, in your axilla under your arm, um, and actually still get that same therapy, yep. um, and do it that way. And of course, like everything, you can buy things cheap on the internet these days, and everything, a lot of technology is a lot cheaper, so there's a, a lot better access um, to the uh, the general population for these techniques.
0: Yep. Have you heard of that mirror dry treatment before?
2: I haven't specifically heard of mirror dry itself. No.
1: Okay. I think. And, have you? Yogi? In mean, my understanding, it's uh, sort of electromagnetic microwave energy, um, which is sort of a non-surgical, non-invasive technique. But yep. uh, nothing that I've actually personally used myself.
0: Yeah. So I think it's sort of again like sort of localized treatment, but you still have the same. You can have this similar side effects where you get compensatory sweating in other places, and I have heard of people actually getting burns from the treatment um so but some people swear by it so something else to consider i suppose and then um the last thing we had uh mentioned here yogi's um botox essentially or um uh botox injections in various areas i think obviously i'm not someone who does treatment for hyperhidrosis but i'd be a bit wary or not very keen to inject into someone's hand so i don't know how it works in the axilla and Uh, Ed, if you had any comments about Botox?
2: I think in the, um, for the axilla, I think it tends to be like a a reasonably effective treatment. Um, One of the issues, well, there are a few issues behind it. First of all, it's an intradermal injection, so it's right into the skin itself, so it can actually be quite painful. Um, And so you have to basically sort of raise a a bleb um, under the skin of basically the entire axilla or the entire um, surface that's going to be sweating. And so, generally speaking, it's tend to be bilateral for idiopathic. And so, you're doing that for both sides with a certain amount of, of Botox. Um, and it, given that it's Botox, it doesn't last forever. So, you can sometimes get three, four months, sometimes a bit longer. And so, if, um, if a patient's going down that path, then it's sort of something they're going to be doing basically indefinitely, or at least if, if symptoms are going to improve, it's get older then until that point. Um, but one of the other issues from a, a Botox point of view is that from a, um, on the PBS Botox is indicated for um, hypodrosis treatment, but it's only, um, you can only, uh, it's only funded on PBS for a dermatologist and neurologists. It's not actually funded for vascular surgeons to do oh, okay. it.
0: Okay. That's interesting.
1: Fascinating. And so, I guess that sort of broadly summarises the range of non-operative techniques. And I guess to then go on to the nitty gritty of the conversation for tonight, Ed, there are then also surgical techniques for the management of hyperhidrosis. And perhaps of no surprise to you, Ed, um, the first sort of open surgical thoroscopic sympathectomy was performed or documented to have been performed in the 1920s when you were still kicking around in your early days of practice, Edward. But um, the more endoscopic ablations were reported in the 50s. And it's probably true that endoscopic thoroscopic sympathectomies are now the gold standard um, for how we do approach uh, treatment for this. Um, Especially for those trainees who are coming up and into their exam, it'd be worthwhile having a chat about um, sort of the technique itself, Ed. And so perhaps if we could walk through um, the sort of Preparatory um, aspects of the thoracoscopic sympathectomy itself, and then the procedure, um, that might be a good way to start. If um, so, Ed, your initial considerations preoperatively for a patient who you're going to put forward for thoracoscopic sympathectomy.
2: The, the important thing for a, a thoracoscopic sympathectomy is because of the the way it's done, we're accessing into the chest cavity and have an anesthetist who will um, put in a double lumen tube, so therefore they can inflate each lung separately. And then while you do the procedure, you have to deflate one lung, um, and then that gets out of the way to be able to access the sympathetic chain that's then reinflated, and then you do the same on the other side if you're doing bilateral. So therefore, any patient who's got any history of respiratory disease, yeah, it's, it's really important to at least get them um, get them seen by an anesthetist beforehand at least make an assessment um, of their suitability for that if someone's had any previous thoracic surgery before or any history of spontaneous pneumothorax then that would be at least a relative if not a um, an absolute contraindication for the procedure um given those factors uh in general uh, as we're saying a lot of the patients they're going to be doing this for tend to be young fit healthy people so they're not usually a big issue but they're also important things to um to look at because uh, you know, whilst the, obviously this is a procedure which or the, a, a a disease which is you know has a significant impact in the lives of these young people but it, to some degree it is relatively cosmetic a procedure and you're doing a procedure where the actual risk involved can be quite severe and so you don't want to be taking this sort of jumping jumping into a procedure like this without having a really good reason and without um, spending a lot of what, a reason amount of time you know, adequately consenting a patient and counseling them about the pros and cons Because if they if they're worried about you know the cosmetic appearance of um, having sweaty armpits, um, because they'll want to wear you know more skimpy clothing or nicer clothes, and then you end up having a a bleeding complication with a a thoracotomy, then that's obviously a bad outcome. outcome.
1: yeah.
2: And Um, so I think a a lot of really hinges on on on, certainly on that for a start, to be your your pre um, pre optive work, I believe.
1: Yeah. And so just to sort of flesh out some of that preoperative consideration with the patient, Ed, is it important to provide an expectation for the outcome of surgery with the patient? Uh, and do you also talk about the levels of ablation that you perform um, depending on their presentation of symptoms?
2: Yeah, so the, um, uh, if we look at um, to look at a couple of different things from that point of view, um, so if we're talking about the different different levels um, of what they have, so for, for palmer, palmer and auxiliary, if they're separate or if they're together or if you have some planter, then what you're actually going to be doing for the procedure, the pre- procedure itself is fairly similar, but the, the level at which you're which you're dividing the synthetic chain, which is, of course, the, the idea of the procedure itself. Uh, and so yeah, you, you need to consider which levels, and there's – it's not different, people have different opinions about this, and you spend a lot of time reading. and Rutherford will tell you one thing, and other books will tell you other things. Um, but effectively, um, the more levels of the sympathetic chain you divide, the more likely you are to have problems related to that. And the, the particular problems that, that you worry about is the fact that you can get compensatory hyperhidrosis, um, which is a, a, a really important thing to talk to patients about from a counseling point of view, because they may end up with a having had sweaty hands and have bone-dry hands, but if they then end up with very sweaty groins or sweaty feet, which is even more distressing, then that can be a much bigger issue and that's certainly not, not uncommon. Um, and so you know, patients need to be aware of that. And yeah, a lot of people say, hey, if I can have a, a dry hand or a dry armpits and everything else that's sweaty, I don't really care. Yep. But it's certainly an important thing that people need to be aware of.
0: Yeah, so I think there are some guidelines on the yoga. Um, There's some thoracic, uh, the name of this group or society. Uh, the
1: 2011 so. consensus guideline on <laughs> the, the Thoracic Society consensus guideline on thoroscopic sympathectomies is what you're referring to. Yeah, that,
0: yeah that's the one. That's the one. Because you look at that and you
1: just go. Sounds exactly like it. So. Yeah.
0: So you look at that and go, well, why don't I just go as high as I can? And then that way I've got to take care of all the problems. And the answer is the risk of compensatory sweating goes mm-hmm. up. The higher you go, essentially, and
2: I think another, if it's talking about the levels and things, that it's important to um, talk about what we're actually talking about. So, if we're talking about thoracic sympathectomy, in reality, mm. that's not what we're doing. So, sympathectomy itself is what used to be done, and what Rutherford describes. Um, in fact, what you're actually in, and in doing that procedure, what you do is you're actually excising the sympathetic chain, excising the sympathetic ganglion um, of uh, of each of those levels. So, actually, doing quite it's quite a, a damaging surgery. And so what's, what most of us would us would have been involved in and seen and actually practiced is technically called a thoracoscopic sympathotomy. So you're actually dividing the sympathetic chain rather than actually excising the ganglia. And apart from the fact that it actually um, has uh, you know, equal effectiveness, it has lower rates of compensatory hyperhidrosis yep. and as you can imagine, lower lower risk of um, uh, complications as well.
0: Yeah, so that's an interesting point you bring up here because uh, there's sort of two procedures described. describe one. As you said, you sort of get the sympathetic chain, you dissect like a whole length of it out, then you excise it with thoroscopic (laughs) scissors and then you remove it. But what most people do is um, basically just ablate the chain at a level, which is obviously a much simpler procedure, but you're saying that the benefit of doing that is that the risk of compensatory sweating is much less, and it's a much more straightforward procedure.
2: Yeah, because if you actually, so as I did a, a couple of months ago, I did a, a talk for um, some of the dermatologists in Adelaide about the surgery for this, so thought I should probably read, it, read a bit more about it before I uh, talked about it. And you look at the evidence behind it and you, and you get sort of people talking about sort of really high high complication rates and high rates of compensatory hyperhidrosis, And, you know, get a lot of websites that quote that kind of stuff because, of course, everyone Googles things these days, particularly yeah. young patients who are our target audience for this. And there's a lot of sort of scaremongering out there, but really all, all, a lot of that is looking at sort of old data at looking at old procedures where people only did symphectomies and removed the whole synthetic chain, removing multiple levels. And they did have much higher rates of um, uh, complication and, uh, and side effects from that. And so when you actually look at what's yeah. the more modern te- techniques that we, that we describe and we do today, actually the, the risk complications are a lot lower.
0: Yeah. So quite up to 70% or something uh, quite substantial. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely.
1: Yeah. Sam got very excited there because uh you know, fellowship study. He went back and found an old copy of Rutherford and found this description of the yeah, operation. Yeah, I was like, what, which is, what is
0: this? <laughs>
1: <laughs>
0: like the night before panic. It's like, hold on, this is not what I this is not what I learned before. What is this operation?
1: <laughs> Edward Edward. This, it was the,
2: the, 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 this is. Uh, I didn't have that problem. I didn't read Rutherford. Yeah. <laughs>
0: actually, the, the, actually, the description in the Oxford textbook of uh, this procedure is right on point. It just shows us. It's very simple, and there's a table that shows which level to ablate and then that's it.
2: Yep, that, that's all you need. Actually, the, the, I, I like this is one of the things I did actually cross reference to Rutherford, and I looked Rutherford, and I just got confused. I just yeah. <laughs> had no idea what i are talking about. I'll, I'll agree with <laughs> because, that.
0: The the, 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 old, the the Rutherford chapter isn't on on this topic. isn't I didn't think it was uh, very straightforward.
2: Yeah, it's very old fashioned, and, and it it really does describe me. Because what it talks about, it talks about, you know, there will be levels of light, it talk about G2, G3, G4, yeah. and what they talk about is the actual the ganglions are at different levels. Yeah. And one of the reasons that, you know, one of the things that's changed is the way it's described. And I think those consensus guidelines you'll talk about is where it actually came out. That um, what what we talk about as far as what level you're treating, um, the consensus is you, it's the level, well, or you, 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 sorry, you divide this synthetic chain. Over the base of the rib of that level. So, third rib level, fourth rib level, fifth rib level. Yep. Rather than talk about ganglia, because ganglia is sitting between the ribs. And so, you know, it's the one above, it's one below. So, it's a bit more confusing.
0: Yeah. So, are you, I think, sorry to interrupt. So, are you ablating the chain or the ganglion?
2: It, just the chain itself. Yeah. So that the ganglia remain intact. And so, all we're doing is dividing the connections between each individual um, level.
1: Yeah. And Sam, will go into that in a little bit more detail as, as Ed describes the procedure. But I guess, especially for our trainees out there, I think Ed and Sam touched on a very important aspect of preparing when you're preparing for your exam that um, you really do need to take into account the content that you're reading and talk to colleagues and in particular, talk to the your consultants within your unit um for advice and guidance in terms of this procedure it's definitely something that's definitely examinable in our fellowship exam and it's well worth having a good feel and good sort of uh, scope around it so um and you talked about um an anaesthetist uh, who's comfortable with um a double lumen ett and being able to deflate and inflate the lung as required the um I guess my other consideration for you preoperatively is positioning of the patient. How do you have them positioned um, prior to embarking on the procedure itself?
2: Um, so like a, a lot of procedures, everyone's got their own way of doing it and thinks it's the best way to do it. But so, And so I don't have a, an absolute, this is my favourite way, but um, or who I actually sort of get the ideas from. But I think the important things you've got to think about what, what the procedure entails and, and therefore what you actually need to achieve in the position of the patient. Because as we're saying, you need to deflate the lung um, and we're looking at the synthetic chain, usually at the second, third, fourth rib level, usually not the second, but third, fourth, fifth. And so you're going up to the top of the thoracic cavity. Therefore, the majority of the time, you don't actually need to actively deflate the lung. It just deflates itself Um, and then it just drops out of the way by gravity. And so what you don't want to have is a patient who's lying perfectly flat. And so positioning patients, they can be in a, a beach chair position um, on operating table uh, is really important to get a like a, a reasonable, you know, quite some height or some angulation to the patient. Um, so for those of us who work in centres, we actually have a hybrid operating theatre with a, an anger table, which unfortunately we don't have in public system Adelaide, we do have in private. Um, then this would be a procedure where you, you probably would have um, some benefit if you don't have a significant tilt on the table that you probably just need to get a proper operating table in or do it in another theatre. So you want to have the patient position so they're um, sitting up reasonably high, so probably a 30 to 45 degree angle, uh, and um, also getting the arms out of the way. So one of the ways that um, I've done this, and depends on the theatre as to what equipment you have, that have a, a, a metal crossbar which sits effectively in front of the patient's chest um, and having the hands or the, the arms sort of abducted. Um, so, yes, yeah, I'm trying to remember, is that flexed? Anyway, you want to have the uh, – I, I wasn't really good at these sort of things. But so you want to have the patient basically with their, kind of with their arms crossed in front of them and their arm, and then they're always elevated. It's kind of hard to describe. But you're kind of going to see it. Um, yeah, exactly. So Sam's doing it on the video screen; that I can see, but none of you are going to be able to see that. <laughs> um, but so, so, he he, so,
1: like, like a GD.
2: Um And so, it, it, they're really the, the key key aspects here. You have the the arm is kind of up and out of the way, um, so you can get good access, um, and uh, have the patient um, sort of tilted up so you get the lung to deflate um, at a reasonable angle. Yeah. Um, and then from there, so the, the other thing to sort of briefly talk about is you know whether you go one side at a time or two sides at a time.
1: Yeah.
2: Some people advocate that you should do one side at a time um, for multiple reasons. So A, if you one of the risks is you, get it, you can have a pneumothorax, um, in which case you have bilateral pneumothoraces, that's a bad thing. The other thing is people say, oh, if you get a Horner syndrome on one side, then the patient may not want to have the procedure done on the other side or they have significant symptoms on one side. After the procedure, may not want it on the other side. But I think things like the risk of Horner syndrome really with the modern modern techniques is is very, very, very low. Yeah. Um, it's really because if you go if you go too high, that's a significant problem. Um and um I think in the in the majority of cases I would certainly um do both at the same time. So it means you if you're prepping both sides, you have to obviously prepare in a, in a particular position. Um whereas if you just do one at a time, it makes it a lot easier to position the patient as well. Yep.
1: And the significance of heart rate preoperatively, Ed, do you take that into account, uh, particularly if they sit towards the bradycardic side, side of it? Um, is that significant to, to sort of stop you from intervening on the day or reassessing whether it's the right procedure for them?
2: Um, it's only worth sort of considering if there's any sort of uh, underlying problem there, or if they're just a, a patient who is, um, sort of, it's just a, a very, very fit patient who's got um, sort of good uh, anaerobic capacity potentially, but if you had a patient who's sort of, uh, perhaps a little bit older and any underlying problems or any concern about an underlying underlying rhythm abnormality, then that would certainly be a um, something to be worried about and get looked at. Looked at.
1: And I guess historically, the procedure was previously performed in the context of long QT syndrome and so forth. So there's. I guess some um, uh, cardiac ca- cardiac physiology component to the you know the interaction of these sympathetic chains, and as such, definitely worthwhile considering preoperatively before you embark on that as well. Um, and I guess um, Ed, once you've you I guess just to talk about positioning, I know you, you know you described um, the sort of genie position, but uh, in, in the past, I've definitely seen people position people, people in a very steep reverse Trendelenburg with um, in it sort of arms in a crucifix position with the arms out. Um, and you're right. I think it, you do what you need to do to achieve the procedure that you're trying to perform. Uh, and you position the pa- patient that's safely to allow you to do that. And there are different, definitely variants in each of those techniques. Um, so, Ed, To perform this procedure, I I guess you normally uh, have either a a registrar, a trainee, someone else there to, uh, to, I guess, to assist you with holding a camera or to allow you to visualise the structures. So let's presume that the patient's now prepped and draped. Where are we making our incisions to allow us to position our ports?
2: Um, so it's a, another area where like a lot of things, there are lots of different ways and everyone's got their own opinion there everyone's absolutely right. Um, I've seen um, it's not something I've done, but I've seen, seen it described where some people want to do absolute minimally invasive to the point where there's no no visible scar. They would do a single port via a uh, sub areola incision um, which seems uh, obviously for, for, it's just for men, not for women. Um, and so <coughs> you can go to extremes of trying to avoid that, but in reality, the majority of people, if you if you you can do this either via a single ten millimeter port or two five millimeter ports, depending on the the equipment that you have. Yep. Um, in which case, then you yeah, go from a scarring point of view, that's not as big an issue. Going back to so you know two port two port or single port, this comes down to the equipment you have in um, in your hospital that you can actually get some uh, cameras where you can actually pass an instrument through the middle of the camera as well. In which case, you can just have a, a single port. Um and and that's it. Yeah. And so you don't actually have uh you don't need a second port for your instrument. Having said that, that means you have a ten millimeter um, port incision, whereas if you go a two port method you can use the five millimeter cameras you can get these days and use a two five millimeter ports, in which case you make two much smaller incisions. Um and so you can uh you the, that means you can kind of get away with it a bit more.
0: So I presume then you're not too keen well you're not too um strict on having a angled um camera.
2: Um, it's a, an angle camera can give you, um, some benefit, but you know, in reality for this procedure, you, you generally have a fairly straight line. Yeah. Um, and it also depends on the, uh, the skill of your assistant, if they're going to be holding, if they're going to be holding the, the camera for you, yep. if you're holding it yourself, then, um, which you can do, and certainly I have done, then you can kind of get away with it because you probably trust yourself more. Um, yep. But in general, you get a fairly straight line. But yeah, you know, if you've got somebody who's got sort of a bulky lung, or say if you're doing a um, going for a slightly lower level, so for an auxiliary, we're going fourth and fifth rib, then that is actually going to be a bit lower. In which case, you're having the um, an, a thirty-degree angled camera would give you some benefit as well. Yep.
1: And and I guess I've always seen um, surgeons put in the first port and then visualize the entry of the second port, especially if they do a two-port um, technique and um, it just. Des- de- I've seen a variation in practice from having uh, sort of mid clavicular ports to purely auxiliary ports to a port in the anterior auxiliary line and a subsequent port in the mid auxiliary line. I guess there are definitely variations to it, but um, in, in essence, my experience would be that as when you put in these ports, you're trying to achieve some some degree of triangulation, not only to visualize, but then also to be able to guide your instrument to uh, to the site that you're going to ablate. Let's say you now have your ports in. Um, do you typically insufflate the the pleural the cavity with some CO2? Ed? Um,
2: no, I, never worried about that. Um, the, in general, the um, by the anaesthetist is turning off turning off that lung. Um, it, the lung just starts to collapse, and the and the the important thing, however, if you if you, if you are using ports. Um, like a, a, a true laparoscopic port, then have the, the side valve where you would interflate. <clears throat> you wanna have that port open. Um, so you're basically allowing pressure to equalize from the inside of the thoracic cavity to the outside mm. of the thoracic cavity. And, and really just, just by doing that, that's usually enough for the lung to just start collapsing. And then if the lung is still just sitting up, then even um, using your, your camera or the, um, your, your diathermy uh, force with, with care, obviously, You can just start to um, carefully push the lung down and out of the way Um, but it is important you're doing that under vision um, so you're not damaging anything because every now and then you'll find patients actually have some uh, adhesions um, of the lung up to often right up to the um, uh, the apex Uh, and sometimes you will have to divide those adhesions so uh, for example, if you did have some of those there but you hadn't actually completely visualized it and you start trying to push the lung down, you can actually um, start pulling on those adhesions and either tearing the pleura itself and so getting some bleeding from there or worse, actually tearing the lung and getting either some bleeding or um, uh, creating a, a leaf and having the urethorax related to that. Yep. So That's certainly important to so be, be careful and have a good look around at, at what you what you're doing.
1: And Ed, when you first put the camera in and and I guess you've got the lung out of the way and you're looking into the pleural cavity, uh, a useful landmark that uh, a surgeon that I used to work with would say that usually the highest rib that you can visualise is the second rib. You're not typically going to see the first rib. And so that helps you provide um, sort of your orientation and the landmark of where you sit. I guess the other structures you might see would be particularly the subclavian the and then axillary artery as it runs across and pulsates at the top of the lung field um and so as you then start to landmark where you stand and trying to find out what level you want to intervene on that's usually a good point to then say that's probably the second rib there and you work your way down uh, yeah and
2: the important thing is obviously think about your patient as well if you've got a patient who's very very skinny and they don't have much body fat then it's more likely that perhaps you may actually see the base of the first rib. That's still a lot less likely. Um, whereas you've got the average patient who's got a little bit of uh, a little bit of subcutaneous tissue on board. Then yeah, you're right. The, the first of the ribs that you're actually going to be able to visualise the, the the neck of is the um, uh, is going to be the second rib, and, and you can really go from there.
1: Yeah, and so apart from the camera, what um, what uh, I guess laparoscopic um, equipment do you have? Available on hand, or are you using to then perform the procedure itself?
2: So, the majority of the time, just a um, basically a diathermy wand or whatever you want to call it is really the only instrument other than a camera that you would need. Um, if you've got, uh, if you do have any um, uh, adhesions and you need a bit of manipulation of the lungs, then having a um, sort of a basic diathermy, basic laparoscopic force can be can be useful. Um, but it's very rare that you actually need that. The majority of the cases, you don't. You can get away with just the diathermy. Um, the the hook, um, which is generally what I my preference what I would use. Yeah. And um, and and that's about it. Obviously, it's for any of these procedures it's important to think about your know, plan A, B, C, and D when things go wrong. Yep. So it's important to certainly at least have available, if not connected up, a um a, a, a washer sucker um type setup, which is obviously um you want to make sure that it's appropriate for the size port that you have available. Um, and uh, just a general sort of laparoscopic trays. You've got a, a variety of instruments um, should the need arise to, to do anything like that. Um, and it's always important to, to think, all right, if, if you do end up in real trouble, that you may end up requiring to do a thoracotomy. So you want to at least sort of know that there is available, not necessarily in there, sort of open up, ready to go, but you want to have a, a thoracotomy tray so at least available and, and ready to go should the need arise.
0: Yep. Just a, just coming back to the whole ganglion chain, just where you do your um, ablation, Ed, just in relation to the rib and the the ganglion, does the actual chain itself tend to lie on the rib or is it in the spaces between?
2: So the the ganglia tend to sit in the spaces in between, um, which I suppose from an anatomical point of view makes sense because you've got a a potential space there and you've got a, um, a, a, a larger clump there so... It's a, it fits in between, and then what you actually see over the, um, the neck of the rib is just the sympathetic chain itself. Yep. Um, and so which is obviously one of the reasons why doing just a sympathotomy or other sympathectomy reduces yep. your, your operative risk significantly because it, it basically it sits there, it's quite prominent. All you really see is often the, a, um, uh, the parietal pleura um, with a, a fairly obvious white rope um, with just rib on either side yep. of it. Um occasionally there are you will have some um veins which have lie underneath the prior pleura, but they're quite obvious. Um and usually they're, they're not so sort of involved in that, but uh often it's actually quite easy to see what you're dealing with and um it means is actually uh, your know, your risk is much lower. Yep.
0: So you're basically doing your ablation over the neck of the rib itself rather than the um intercostal space. Yep.
2: Yeah. Yeah, exactly right, and so it means it's it's a lot safer. So, and because you know that the only thing behind the nerve is going to be your rib, then you essentially, with your diathermy hook at the time, you're actually doing your sympathectomy itself. Um, you can divide the pleura directly, sort of overlying and yeah. on either side of the sympathetic chain, and basically sort of push against the the sympathetic chain itself um, as you're diathermating until you hit rib and then stop.
0: Okay, so rib is kind uh, of your, it's important. When, the sign that you've done or you've reached the right spot. Yeah. yeah, and which is why it's also quite important that you,
2: that you get right in the middle of the rib itself. Because mm. if you're higher or lower, given ribs and are not completely flat, if you're a little bit too high, a little bit too low, and you're um, pushing forward, putting a little bit of forward pressure on the diathermy hook, then if you do slip over the top and you hit the intercostal vessel, then
1: that's when you can end up in trouble. Yeah. yeah, I guess the um, the other variant of that is using it. First of all, I guess for vascular surgeons who don't do a lot of laparoscopic procedures, for us it's a, it's a skill set that we don't get to perform and practice often. And so definitely when you watch general surgeons use, uh, as Ed described it, either the, the laparoscopic wand or the, um, the diathermy hook, there's really a technique in terms of being able to get tactile feedback from the tissue uh, to then discern the tissue that you're dividing um definitely apart from using the 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 neck of the rib as a way or a landmark to know that you've divided the chain i guess some people tease out the tissue individually and pull forward and take it off the the surrounding tissues to try and hopefully avoid diatherming into adjacent vessels Um, and i've definitely seen people try and hook around um, the sort of chain itself to try and um, discern it from surrounding tissue but that um, is definitely not a skill set that we perform enough to feel comfortable doing so all the time, but I think your variation on practice is definitely something that um, makes it much more achievable, especially for us simple, humble. Uh, that's
0: why I like fun. to do the occasional lap collie yoga, just to keep those skills alive, you know.
1: What? From, from the groin with a <laughs> wire.
0: collegiogram <laughs> <laughs> <K-Kalandiogram laughs> is still a gram, so anyway. <laughs> How did that Uh, vibe end up in the common bile duct? Well, look, it was an injury and I just need to cover it.
1: (laughs) Don't get started, Sam. You'll be doing tips procedures before you know it. (laughs) Um, And then, Ed, I guess um, you've divided... um, Once you've divided the chain, you're happy that you've achieved hemostasis. Talk me through the process of you exiting the chest because I think this there's definitely... Um, many ways that people do this, in particular the order in which they take a port out, reinflate the lung, watch it inflate, and then remove it all at once, so on and so forth under um, as, as the lungs being reinflated. Is that sort of your process as well?
2: Yeah, that's right. actually just very briefly, just for um, sounds benefit more than anything else. want to mention when you're dividing a synthetic chain, um, uh, the important thing is that there's not just the chain itself sometimes. You can come, uh, there can be uh, an extra um, sympathetic nerve, oh. uh, which Sam would love to tell us all about.
1: I know the name. This, I know the name the, and the name well, only. But, but. Hold, hold on. This is the reason <laughs> Sam passed his fellowship exam. He just, he just name dropped and left. And
0: they, the nerve of Kunz. And then they asked me, What is that nerve? And I, the bell rang, and then that was it. <laughs> and my mic dropped and walked out.
2: That <laughs> so was clearly your moment to shine. and yeah. And that was the, the the difference between passing and failing. So good, good yeah, well, moment. they sat
0: around and you know thought about everyone's individual scores and looked at mine and said, "Wow, you did pretty poorly up until the last operative question, and then you dropped the nerve of Quince."
2: And, and, and so this nerve of Quince that we're, we're giggling a bit about is actually a real thing, um, and it's a kind of effectively like an accessory nerve, accessory part of the sympathetic chain, which. Um, can actually join the um, different sympathetic nerve levels more laterally than the actual sympathetic chain um, itself. And it's, sometimes it can be visualised and you'll see sort of on, on the internet people will take photos, like there it is there, but no one's ever actually seen it. doesn't actually, like it, you can't really see it that well. Um, and so the important thing once you divide divided the sympathetic chain is that you want to actually burn along the level of the rib out laterally a good couple of centimetres just in case there isn't the uh, nerve of quench need to divide as well. Before you get out, but anyway, moving on to the the exit
1: technique. Sam, uh, uh, just before you just before you get onto that, Sam was so excited that he had ner- his name dropped down the Nerva Kunz in his fellowship exam. He immediately called me after he had exited the room with Yogi, I I, I mentioned the Nerva Kunz. I'm definitely passed.
0: Can we move? Can we move? You yeah, yeah they can act like the academic achievement of my life. <laughs>
1: <laughs> amongst, actually, amongst actually,
0: actually, quick Google search live follow up nerve quince communicating branch between T1 and T2 nerves.
1: Quince nerve. There You're you welcome. go. There you go. Big Sam. Um, but yes, yeah, so an exit technique.
2: So, uh, so the, the important thing here is you've got a, a completely deflated lung um, that you need to re expand. Uh, and although you haven't, I mean, some people do talk about um interflating the thoracic cavity, I think there have actually been instances where people have actually died as a result of complications from that. So it's generally recommended not to do that. Um, so in general, so we've basically you've had a port open, um, which has then allowed atmospheric pressure to equalise into the thoracic cavity, um, which is great. But if, if you then just pull your ports out and then allow the skin and the subcutaneous tissue to, to seal over, um, then that it can't go anywhere. And so you've left the patient with a pneumothorax and the lung won't reinflate. Uh, and so the important thing once you get to that point is you need to, as with a lot of operations, need to be in communication with your anaesthetist to let them know what's happening. And so at this point, you want to be telling your anaesthetist to start to um, inflate the um, the lung, um, and uh, a couple of different things that people do. Sometimes um, people actually use, say, a Blake's drain um, and insert that in through one of the ports um, sufficiently that you've got a, a good, you know, five ten centimetres of it inside thoracic cavity. Uh, and then actually connect that uh, up to suction um, at the uh, as the um, the lungs being reinflated. inflated um, One thing I find quite helpful is to to leave the camera at, uh, basically try to withdraw the port most of the way out, so you're not so you don't have a port sticking 5, 10 centimeters into the thoracic cavity, and then pull the camera out as well, so you're at the point you can still see the inside of the thoracic cavity, but once again you're not um, poking in a long way uh, and watch the lung reinflate. Ensuring that you that it is um, you're filling up most of that space, uh, and then either having a port left inside um, uh, open to air or have a, a drain on the inside connected to the suction, um, and then keeping it in for as long as possible, uh, and then remo- I would remove that at the end, um, and then take it out. Not sure if you guys have had any, come across any other um, tricks or things other people have done.
0: Um, yeah, again speaking to a surgeon in Melbourne who does a lot of these, he actually puts in an ICC and leaves it in for 24 hours and then takes out the next day which you know I can imagine is obviously unpleasant for the patient but obviously will then stop the the risk of getting a pneumothorax quite significantly um yeah I don't know if you've got any advances on that or if you've heard what other people do
1: yeah just a variation of what Ed described which um uh visualizing a blake drain being placed yeah and then um leaving the blake drain in place connected to a sort of closed drain system um and then looking to take that out within 24 yep. hours um with an initial immediate post-operative chest x-ray and then a 24-hour chest x-ray if appropriate yep. and proceed from there
2: uh, i've certainly never um sort of been involved in any where a drain's been left in not having any problems but you can certainly – it's it's a very safe thing to do um, and you very rarely be criticised for leaving your drain for most operations. Um, but, it, yeah, something does come down to patient comfort as well and it's probably not the most comfortable thing. Yeah, especially if um, you're having speaking, bilateral.
0: I can imagine having two 20 French ICCs in this.
2: Yeah, yeah absolutely. And also it depends what, what size drain you're looking at. If you are going for um, say a full, sort of a, a 20-something French um, drain, then that's a, that's a big tube and that's really, really, really uncomfortable. Um, if you're going for something smaller, even say, leaving on something like a, a Blake strain or something inside or a pigtail, then you know, that, that there's less discomfort, yeah. but perhaps less effective. So it's certainly a, certainly a balance, and, um, and yeah, like all things in life, you probably if you did sort of ten or twenty of these, had no problems. But end up with one pneumothorax where a patient he ends up stuck in hospital with complications, then you know, yeah. you probably stick a drain in for all of them. But yeah,
0: sounds like just you know re- uh, visualizing the lung reinflating, ensuring that you've depress it, pressurise the chest cavity is the most important steps there and the drain is optional.
2: Yeah, I think as um, uh, as you, you touched on there, the, the important thing is that as soon as possible afterwards, once the patient's out to recovery, you just get a chest x-ray yep. um, with the patient um, sitting up, um, some expiration, inspiration, as you normally would for looking for a pneumothorax and ensuring that if there are any problems you pick up early. Yep. Yep. And the majority of the time what you're actually looking for there is a degree of residual air most of the time you will see a, some pneumothorax. It's, it's really hard to get all of the air out but as long as that's um, only a small amount and just up the apex, and that's usually not a problem. Yeah. And then repeat it the next day, which should have decreased in size. Yeah. Um, the other thing that can happen is if you do happen to damage the lung, that it can um, sort of create a, uh, you, know, you would have a, an air leak and therefore an increase in pneumothorax. That's more of a concern. Um, and so if you had any any particular doubt on your initial chest X-ray, um, or any concern that perhaps the pneumothorax is bigger than you might have expected, then um, it probably at the very least do a um, sort of an early repeat chest extra within a couple of hours.
1: Yeah, and definitely in your population group that may have um, bull eye, uh, but like as you mentioned, uh, an accidental injury at the time when you're trying to move aside or deflate the lung occasionally that can then create a little pleural fistula, which can cause. That sort of persisting pneumothorax, which can always be frustrating for not only yourself, but also the patient as they're in for a slightly prolonged period of time with the drain in. (laughs) All right. Well, um, look, that was a fantastic discussion covering uh, the broad topic of hyperhidrosis, but very importantly, also the sort of operative description and discussion of thoroscopic sympathectomy. it's been a privilege to have you on and talk about this in detail and hopefully for the trainees out there, they got a lot out of it in terms of some of the operative considerations in particular in regards to the procedure. Um, Ed, for Sam and myself, this feels like um, five years ago where you were our boss pretending to take us around, but um, things have changed and um, I'd like still, I'd still lay claim that I was still your favourite set one registrar, but um, Sam may disagree. <laughs> I don't know,
2: I'm sure Sam would, would like claim to that as well, but I'll, I'll let you guys fight that out. Let's so it's only been an, an honor to be invited onto your, uh, onto your podcast and happy to, happy to help that.
0: I know a lot of people would find this very useful, so we appreciate your time.
1: No worries at all. Thank you very much.